following podcast contains the use of bad language. Some of the content may not be suitable for young people. Hi, I'm Dan McHugh and this is McUniverse, a podcast where I encourage you to entertain ideas that you wouldn't normally allow yourself to consider. In the following episode, we're going to venture into the world of sleep, and that also means I'll be talking about dreams. I remember I was at a party one night, and I started telling a friend about a dream I had, and she stopped me and said, No one wants to hear about your dreams, Dan. I assure you, this episode will not be about my weird dreams. We're going to hear from some dream specialists, lucid dream practitioners, and scientists. You'll see that Even though your eyes are open, you are still asleep. Think about this. Quite often we wake up and switch on our phones, TV or radio, and as we get ready for our day, our minds get filled with news and ideas that someone else has chosen to talk about, especially if you follow the news cycle. This means your daily thought agenda and your inner world deep inside your mind is being influenced and shaped by someone else. Yes, it's good to know what's going on in the world, but it's also good to give your mind a break from that. And this is why I believe it's important to go inside your own head, to use your creative mind and your imagination. Consider outlandish ideas, but mostly it's important to take back control of your own mind and set your own agenda for things you'll think about each day. Or not, it's just a thought. In the last episode of McUniverse, I mentioned that I'm a heavy boy. And so I thought I'd go and have a chat with a friend of mine named Sam Downing. Sam is a health journalist, a personal trainer and nutrition coach. I was expecting him to hit me with a strict diet and some kind of high-intensity exercise regime. Instead... I was completely surprised by what he had to say. Well, I think the most important things for anyone to address for their health, and I often tell people this, that there are these four pillars. This is something that you, you, know, you kind of hear people say. And the four pillars are to be healthy, that you've got to be physically active, so you've got to exercise or move your body in some way. You have to have a relatively nutritious, balanced diet. That's the second pillar. The third pillar is managing your stress, so looking after your mental health. And the fourth pillar is sleep and making sure you get enough sleep. But if you talk to enough health experts, you realize that there's only three pillars and that sleep is kind of the foundation that they all rest on. So sleep is absolutely foundational. And, you know, working as a health journalist and speaking to a lot of people over the years, I've really come to form this opinion that if you want to make over your health, you know, don't start by radically overhauling your diet which a lot of people do don't get into some crazy gym junkie routine where you're slamming yourself with exercise the first thing you've got to do really is just make sure you're getting enough sleep and enough quality sleep this is absolutely right up my alley i can sleep and that sounds great but the thing is i don't actually sleep that well so i asked sam what i might need to do to fix that In a perfect world, you would not expose yourself to any kind of artificial light or technology before bed. Or any really, the light that from any artificial light, but especially the light that comes out of your smartphone is this blue tinted light. And, you know, this amazing brain you've got in your head is also, in a sense, kind of dumb because it thinks that you're just this this caveman living in caveman times. And 
when this blue light comes into your eyes, your brain thinks, oh, great, that's the sun, so I have to stay up late. It's not time for me to go to bed yet. It's not intelligent, in a sense, to differentiate between light coming from the sun and light coming from your smartphone. So when you're in bed scrolling Instagram, scrolling Reddit, your primitive caveman brain is thinking, oh, the sun's still up, so I won't release melatonin, which is your sleep hormone and kind of primes your body to go to sleep. I'll make you stay up a little bit later. And of course, that's really messing up your entire body. Speaking of messing up your body, another thing Sam mentioned, which is probably an issue for a lot of us, drinking alcohol is also going to affect your sleep. I know it feels like it's good to help you get to sleep, but apparently it ruins the sleep cycle. So sleep and alcohol is really interesting because I think we've all had a really big night on the cans or whatever, and you go home to bed and you think, oh, well, I fell asleep straight away. So therefore, alcohol must help me sleep. But what actually happens in the brain when you're sleeping, when you have a proper night's sleep, there's all these really complicated processes. Your brain goes through all these sleep cycles, which are really important to making you feel refreshed when you wake up. And essentially, when you're drunk, when you're really drunk and you pass out, your brain's just shutting down. So instead of going through all these necessary cycles to restore itself and restore your body, you are just waking up and feeling terrible the next morning, tired, because you haven't actually put yourself through those necessary stages to sleep properly when you're drunk. So how much sleep should we be getting? This is what Sam thinks. Not everybody needs eight hours sleep, but you know some people will need more than eight hours sleep. So somewhere between seven to nine hours a night is when about when most people will need to sleep. You know, you'll often hear people who say, I can get by on four hours sleep a night. Donald Trump, I think, is on the record of saying I can get by on four hours sleep a night. And firstly, I don't think that's true. I think that's fake news. But secondly, I think that most people who think that they can get by on four hours sleep a night are actually, in reality, just so sleep deprived that they're just used to kind of walking around in this half sleepwalking state all day. You know, when you're sleep deprived, you're, it, it shuts down your brain in such a way that you can't actually even recognize that you are sleep deprived. So definitely, you know, four hours sleep a night is not enough. Six hours sleep, you know, you you might think you're functioning fine on six hours sleep. That's probably not going to be enough for you. Seven to nine hours you need to kind of aim for, I think. Because sleep, lack of sleep is actually, you know, linked to so much going on in the brain that if you're not sleeping, that's a real risk factor for degenerative cognitive diseases later in life. So what's the takeaway from this? Get plenty of sleep. Also... Don't boast about how little sleep you need. The reason that you think you don't need it is probably due to the fact that your brain cells aren't communicating with each other very well. Apparently, the average person spends 26 years of their life asleep and a further seven years of their life trying to get to sleep. So that's something like a third of our life spent sleeping and whatever. But this got me thinking, how much of that time would we spend dreaming? Also, why do we dream? Dreaming in our lives plays a really important role. Many people say, I don't dream, but the truth is actually that they don't remember their dreams. Um, Every night when we go to sleep, we enter into the REM state or the rapid eye movement four or five times. And we have about, you know, three to five dreams every night. And when we're having those dreams, uh, a lot of the time 
we're having neurochemical reactions and our body is processing and flushing out things from the day, which are called television dreams, which generally don't have a lot of meaning. Like you experience something in the day and then you're processing at night, which for a lot of people is where the story with dreams ends. But for those people who are delving deeper and wanting to know themselves more deeply and get into the mysteries of life, dreams are a way that they can communicate with their subconscious mind. That's Julia Landry, a certified emotional freedom techniques practitioner, hypnotherapist and metaphysical teacher. She's great at explaining some pretty out there concepts. I once saw Julia give a talk on dreaming and something that resonated with me was the idea that if you can control your dreams, then you have a much better chance at creating the waking life you desire. Have you ever been in a dream and then suddenly realised that you're dreaming and then been able to move through it consciously? That's called lucid dreaming, and it's a skill that you can develop. Julia can teach you how to strengthen that skill. The very first step of doing any kind of dream work is remembering your dreams. If you don't remember your dreams... Um, the first step is just saying to your consciousness, I will remember one dream tonight. I will remember one dream tonight. I will remember one dream tonight. So once for the conscious mind, once for the subconscious mind, once for the unconscious mind. And you might not remember one dream the first time, but if you do that five nights in a row, I'd be extremely surprised if you didn't. Um, so that first step is like doing your first little push up or doing your first like one kilo squat. It begins to condition you to get stronger and stronger in dream work. Once you're at the stage where you are remembering your dreams, you can ask for a specific kind of dream. When Julia talks about requesting a specific kind of dream, she doesn't just mean playing in the dream world like it's a virtual reality computer game. She's talking about setting intentions to solve problems, heal sickness, and using your dreams as a tool. The same way you might use meditation. Apparently, if you get really good at lucid dreaming, it's almost like a superpower. It sounds so fantastical and so amazing that you could fall asleep and go, I want to solve this problem or I want to heal this issue. And then you wake up in the morning and it's healed or the problem is solved. Not that you'll find a solution to the problem, but that the problem is actually solved. That just sounds so, so far out and so fantastical. And it's certainly, you won't jump from um, not having done any dream work, not having worked with your consciousness, not remembering dreams to all of a sudden being able to have that skill but it's definitely something that I do believe is possible once you have put in the hard work and the repetition and conditioned your consciousness. I got speaking to a friend of mine named Tom about this whole dream project. He's a really intelligent man, a scientist and a medical doctor. Anyway, he shared a story with me that provided some serious food for thought. And it made me think about dreams in a way that I'd never done before. Fifteen years ago, I went on a Vipassana meditation retreat. I would have been in my early 20s. It was almost like this message was being sent to me, you should check this thing out, you should go and do a Vipassana meditation course. And just kind of kept coming up again and again, and I thought, okay, maybe I should check this out it's a 10-day silent meditation retreat and the course I did was up in the Blue Mountains at Blackheath and there's this meditation center there you're basically meditating something like 12 hours a day sitting in this hall with a bunch of other people a lot of the time it's just silence but you do have some tape recorded instructions for the meditations 
you're not meant to make eye contact or have any kind of non-verbal communication with other people there. You're certainly not meant to talk. You're not allowed to bring any reading materials or talk on the phone or have any kind of outside input. So monk style, right? You get woken up at 4 a.m. to this gong. It's like pitch black dark and you make your way up to the meditation hall and start meditating. So you spend 12 hours a day meditating. You have a a couple of hours of free time which you basically spend going for a walk around the grounds and looking at the view because there's nothing else to do. The the food is all before midday and then you you have a cup of tea or something in the evening but otherwise it's like breakfast and lunch before midday. So it's pretty intensive and you get very little sleep. You don't get that much time to sleep because they're waking up at 4am. I think the last meditation session ends at like 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night and so you're only getting sort of six, seven hours sleep. But I remember having really vivid dreams when I was asleep and I had dreams about flying and you know, I was just really kind of clear dreams of flying over cities and landscapes and having conversations and I, like, I don't remember the specifics of a lot of, of, a lot of the dreams I was having. But there was this one dream, I think it was about day four or day five of the retreat and um, basically in this dream it was like there was another presence there with me like there was a separate being I had this very distinct uh, awareness of there being another consciousness there with me in the dream and this consciousness was didn't have any form didn't have any physical form it was a shadow a kind of a shadow being and it it didn't really have a voice but it was able to communicate with me and it basically said to me hey there I'm a dream being I live in the, in the dream world and I'm kind of stuck here I've never been able to experience what it's like to be in the physical world because I don't have a body I've got a deal for you how about you lend me your body just for a little bit just give me a turn of your body for a little while so I can see what it's like to, to be in the physical realm because I've never had that experience. At first it didn't seem malevolent at all. It seemed like another being there saying, come on, help us out, do us a favour, give us a turn of your body. <laughs> and um, so I listened to this and I was just like, whoa, no way, no way, dude. <laughs> this is my body, you're not having a go. And then the feeling of this uh, being changed very quickly to being a bit more malevolent and not so good and this being basically said look here's the deal you're going to give me a go of your body right now or I'm going to make your life hell this is my realm this is the dream realm every time you come here I'm going to make it just really unpleasant for you if you don't do this for me and I felt really threatened and really scared by that and it was a real visceral fear I just knew I had to get the hell out of there and like I had that sensation of I don't know if you've ever had that when you're dreaming and you have to force yourself to wake up and you it's real a real kind of forced thing of move 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 your body and you're forcing your your mind back into your body and you're trying to force your eyes open and get your consciousness back into your body and then I managed to wake up 
and I woke up and I was in a sweat and I was had the physical sensations of terror, you know, adrenaline pumping. And um, it was two o'clock in the morning and pitch black dark and, and I was just lying there in, with this feeling of terror, my heart pounding, and I just thought I can't go back to sleep. I can't go back to sleep because that being was there and waiting for me and was going to terrorise me for not going into this deal with it to let it have a go of my body. <laughs> and I remember just lying there for ages, terrified, trying not to go back to sleep. I knew I couldn't go back there. So you guys are going to think I'm silly, but here we go. After hearing Tom's story, it made me immediately think about the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street. If you haven't seen it, it's about a demon who lives in the realm of dreams, where he terrorises teenagers and then viciously murders them. If you look on Wikipedia, you'll see that that original film was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the Los Angeles Times in the 1970s. And the article was about Southeast Asian refugees who, after fleeing to the United States from war-torn Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam, suffered disturbing nightmares where they were being chased by something and then in turn they refused to sleep. Their deaths were attributed to sudden, unconfirmed death syndrome. So it seems we've arrived at the part where we talk about ideas most of us wouldn't normally consider. What if it's possible that there are entities or intelligences that only exist in the dream realm? I reached out to Thomas Peisel, an avid dreamer and author of the book A Field Guide to Lucid Dreaming, Mastering the Art of one iron ortics. He was actually a bit reluctant to talk about certain things as he didn't want to scare people or come across as too outlandish. But I did manage to get him to finally talk. I asked him if he thinks there are entities that only exist in the dream realm. I don't think there are. I know there are. There are entities that exist just in subtle layers of reality. That's their home. They don't have a physical body. There's also intelligences there that control us. They kind of have a a hand on the driver's wheel and operate through us unconsciously, kind of hitting switches and whatnot. The goal of lucid dreaming would be to, okay, let me get clear enough. Let me get to that subtle layer where those switches and where that entity, where that intelligence is, merge with that intelligence. Now I know it. And I am intimately, it's no longer necessary. Almost like, almost like we are children right now and we're asleep at the wheel and there's tons of intelligences, even just the intelligence of your body to heal itself. Those intelligences are much, much more advanced, especially in a subtle level. So we kind of want to take the wheel back, but to do so, we need access to those layers. Now that sounds crazy. But at the root of it, lucid dreaming is not about control. It's about freedom. We want to kind of gain the freedom necessary, take the wheel back. It's like we're a king or a queen and and our entire court is sort of running the show right now because we're asleep. We need to get back on that throne and say, no, 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 I'm awake enough. I'm mature enough. I know how to drive this now. Does that make any sense? So I think Thomas is saying a few different things here. This is my understanding of it. Yes, there are entities that exist in the dream world, 
and they manipulate us to do stuff. And he also kind of implies that they are part of us and we can use lucid dreaming to confront these parts of us, I think. I don't want to sound like a downer or scare people. This is why I typically don't talk about this stuff, but kind of think of it like this. Almost like here in this physical world, we we have like cows and animals kind of caged up and we use them for food and milk or whatever we want to do with them. We're sort of more, we're smarter than them <laughs> in a way and we use them for food in a similar way. And this sounds horrible. Our emotions, our energies are food for other entities. So in a dream, there might be an entity that uh, takes a certain form to elicit a certain emotion to feed off of that. If that sounds so crazy and insane and kind of scary, but the tools of lucid dreaming get you through that because if you are fully lucid and you see, okay, here's this monster or here's this tsunami, if you can see through it as if it's mist, as if it's a cloud, as if it's a projection, nothing can affect you. Those switches that they're hitting just to sort of push you this way or pull you that way, they no longer affect you. That's, that's the state we're trying to, we're trying to get to. I'm no expert in psychology, but to me it seems Thomas is almost touching on the ideas of Carl Jung, especially the idea of a dream world full of entities. I want to compare it to the idea of the collective unconscious, which is a type of psychic dimension that allows all people from different cultures to experience coinciding symbols, characters and images otherwise known as archetypes. Could it be these archetypes are the entities under discussion anyway i was interested to know why thomas thought confronting these dream demons might be beneficial to change what's outside of yourself you have to change yours you what's inside of you so your thoughts your emotions your expectations um when you change those things you watch the dream world immediately change so you might apply that to the waking life and say, oh, okay, here's a circumstance I don't like or a situation or a relationship that I'm having trouble with. Well, it kind of puts you back in the driver's seat well, where it says, well, how can I change? What can I change about myself? And then that is reflected back to me in this world. So maybe this discussion's gotten a little bit too complicated. So I apologize for that, but let's persist. I asked Thomas how his experience with dreaming had altered his perception of being human. And skeptics will really take issue with this part. I personally find it comforting to hear that people are having active experiences that provide anecdotal evidence for the human soul. The other really cool benefit of lucid dreaming is that you start not identifying yourself as your body. You're, you're like, okay, this is a spacesuit I wear here, but it's not me. I'm not this thing. It's just sort of like a vehicle I'm using. So yeah, when you're saying we're ghosts, I mean, yeah, we're ghosts uh, animating sort of a meat spacesuit here. So for those of you that think the topic of lucid dreaming is all woo-woo, lucid dreaming has actually had quite a few different scientific studies done on it. So firstly, some people don't believe lucid dreaming is even a real thing, but I can assure you it is. Peter Morgan, an associate professor of psychiatry from Yale Medical School, has developed research to show that lucid dreamers 
have better functionality in certain parts of their brain than non-lucid dreamers. The research that I did just shows that uh, most likely there's different parts of the brain that are more relevant to someone's ability to have a lucid dream. Um, so people who were better at developing lucid dreams showed better performance on tasks which might engage one part of the brain compared to a different part of the brain. Um, so there's a lot of ways to distinguish what we might think of sort of as intelligence or brain function. And the ability to lucid dream is certainly not something that everybody has. Um, I think everybody can develop it to some degree, but some people have it much more naturally. Um, and that difference is something that we can, that overlaps with different types of brain performance. Um, so my research showed that. Um, but I think colloquially, a lot of people have had the experience of uh, coming up with some new understanding or a new idea uh, during a dream, and in particular, a lucid dream. Um, so I can tell you, personally, I've solved some math problems uh, in my sleep where I'm actually working on it and seeing the problem and kind of writing it out and doing it with a level of meta-awareness that's, you know, consistent with a lucid dream. Um, a lot of people have had that experience. Um, you know, it's already always hard to know where the agency is, you know, um, if we're just monitoring what's happening and we're feeling like we're doing it or whether we're an active participant. Um, but that goes beyond lucid dreams uh, and more to just what consciousness is in general. Another researcher, Daniel Erlacher, a neuroscientist at the University of Bern, Switzerland, has been involved in research that shows lucid dreamers can improve their motor skills by practicing tasks like shooting a basketball or throwing darts in their dreams. Yes, um, so the, the idea came when I was a student because uh, at my university there was a professor and he was an expert in mental rehearsal. And we know that from sport that uh, if you practice uh, physical skills in your in your uh, imagery, in your motor imagery, if you, for example, do a basketball free throw just thinking about it, we know that you get better. So it's like uh, imagery rehearsal. And uh, I was wondering if you could also use your dream state to improve your motor skills. And that was my first question. So can you have a lucid dream and then start to <clears throat> be lucid and then realize, oh, I'm lucid so I can do whatever I want. So let's practice basketball three throws and see if I get better when I wake up next morning in the gym. And that's the basic idea about uh, this whole research line. And uh, in the meantime, we have three experiments uh, where we could show that if you do lucid dream practice, uh, you get the same results for mental rehearsal. So you get a performance gain in wakefulness after your practice. And we had uh, investigated three motor skills. One was coin tossing. It was a very simple task. You had to throw a coin in a, in a cup of coffee. Um, and that was the, the skill to practice. Uh, the second was uh, finger tapping. It's a very simple task uh, from medicine. And uh, then we had a, a third task, which was dart throwing. And in all three experiments, we could show that lucid dream practice can help you to be to get better in the, in the during the day um, in the next morning. Now, earlier in the show, we were talking about entities that only exist in dreams. And yes, I was brave enough to ask a scientist what they thought of this idea. Coincidentally, Daniel Erlicker had actually done some research 
on characters in dreams. Uh, you can you can have an interaction with your dream characters, and this is a quite astonishing uh, experience because I mean, in your dream, every dream character you, you experience seems to be an independent personality. Um, and the question is, why is that like this? And then you can start to uh, do some small experiments and see if those dream characters are really independent from yourself. I mean, it's your brain and you produce this personality or this dream character. And we did some fun experiments where we um, asked, for example, lucid dreamers to ask their dream characters some questions which they cannot know. So, for example, uh, they had to count fingers and you had to hide them behind your back um, when you ask the, the dream character in your dream. And the, the interesting result is that the dream characters know much more than you expect that they know. So, for example, if they have to guess a hidden number behind your back, they will guess uh, the correct number which is impossible in wakefulness. And this shows that there is a connection to your dream characters, which is, of course, clear because it's your brain and you produce this dream character. So there are not independent conscious beings. And that was uh, some funny stuff we did uh, in one lucid dream research experiment we um, yeah, did uh, quite a few years ago. I don't actually disagree with Daniel Erlacher at all, but I don't think the last experiment he mentioned proves anything about dream characters. Surely if you're inside someone's head, you could quite easily guess what they're thinking. Anyway, I think it's great that we have really intelligent people around the world asking some very interesting questions about consciousness. Also, there's further research to show that lucid dreaming is a great tool for people with mental health issues like PTSD, as it provides a management tool for nightmares. And I'll throw an article in the show notes if you'd like to read further about that. Look, I'm just trying to convince you of the merits of lucid dreaming here, okay? I also want to ask you, do you reckon you could make lucid dreaming a part of your everyday life routine? I'm thinking that I might give it a go. And I'm also suggesting to you that you try as well, because we're all currently isolated from each other, and now is the time to try these sorts of things. Look, I think we've started to get too serious with this subject, and actually we could go on and on forever, but I'd like to take you back to Thomas Peisel, who we heard from earlier. Thomas had a dream about Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham had a very important message for the world. Abraham Lincoln uh, <laughs> showed me, this was back in 2011 or something, he showed me uh, this beautiful vision of sort of, the world growing and evolving sort of like a, a snake shedding its skin. And he was talking about how some people might see this as a death and that the world is um, crumbling, but just like a snake, it's, it's, um, it's, it's renewing itself and um, sort of this egg is, is forming. So he was sort of showing me this vision, <laughs> classic Abraham, you know, um, showing me a vision of, of, I guess, our, our, our collective evolution. <laughs> if you wish to discuss this further or send me your thoughts, please get in touch. You can find me online or send an email to dan at danmchugh.com.au. Please don't forget to hit subscribe. Hit five stars in the ratings section of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I can't thank my guests enough. Thank you to Sam Downing, Tom Joss, Julia Landry, Thomas Peisel, Peter Morgan, and Daniel Erlicker. 
I'll throw some links and articles in the show notes, which will give you an opportunity to follow up. Make sure you join me for the next episode of McUniverse, where we look at the world's most commonly used psychoactive drug on the planet, coffee. Catch you next time.